Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Avery, we are back. Episode something. I don't even know what number we're at. I'm going to think 39. A lot of episodes. A lot of episodes. I'm very excited for this one for a couple of reasons. The first is we have Leslie Silverman, who's the head of Web3 from United Talent Agency, joining us a little later. Leslie is someone I started to talk with probably two years ago about this stuff. Always has a lot of opinions, represents a lot of the big artists in the space, and is someone I think really brings a lot of sort of intuition and knowledge would love to like learn more about her career. So I'm really excited to have her on. Me too. I heard she was a lawyer. She was a lawyer. I know. I wish I went to law school now that I think about it. But still time. Still time. You could reverse age. Go back. Maybe you could just buy an NFT of a legal degree. All right. On chain. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. I want to start, Avery, with saying, are you prepared for hot chain summer? And what I mean by that is... Today, when we're recording this, is the beginning of Coinbase's on-chain summer, which is like a month-long festival celebrating on-chain activities. They're doing a ton of stuff around getting people's attention. And they've also partnered with like Coca-Cola, Atari, Zora, Manifold, a bunch of the both like traditional Web2 brands, as well as a lot of the great Web3 brands in creating a sort of month-long experience for people to mint things, get things, meet people, follow artists. And I just want to understand your thoughts on what Coinbase is doing around on-chain summer. One, I think it's fun. I think they're trying to make on-chain happen to be determined if on-chain is going to enter the sort of normie vocabulary. I like it. I think it's interesting on the blockchain, on-chain. I think creates also an avenue for communication that lives outside crypto, which I think is smart for a company like Coinbase, knowing how polarizing crypto is right now to sort of mainstream American investors and just, you know, in the financial services sector broadly. We did not work on that campaign. We do partner with Coinbase, but not on this. So I can't tell you any of the in-depth approach or their strategy. But I think if I were Coinbase, I would be trying to lean into communication and brand building that lives a little bit outside of crypto, DGENs, trading audience, and appeals to more broad-based folks who might have a little money to spend, might have a little money to invest, and they want to enjoy their summer. And they like block parties and artists and soda and all the fun things. And I also think summer is the right season. Summer is about positivity. It's about getting together. It's about outside and groups and music and concerts. And I think it positions just tonality-wise well. I like the colors. Our direction is very vibrant and fun. And let's see if they can make on-chain happen. They're also the first public company to release a decentralized blockchain. Exactly. 
That has been a hot topic, though, as you know. I think that there's a little bit of a back and forth with the base and the optimism. And I think there's two sides to every story, right? Yeah. Well, and I think that combined with like PayPal releasing announcement of creating a stable coin actually just challenges the U.S. to sort of like step up to the plate and make a decision. To me, that is big news. Yeah. And I think that's beyond a campaign. That's beyond a marketing effort. That is a big move by PayPal. And many people don't know, but PayPal, you know, has been very crypto friendly. So is Venmo. And Venmo is, of course, owned by PayPal. And this is in the app. This has existed for years, I believe, as a method of sort of storing, saving those little increments of crypto. And I actually think PayPal kind of has an interesting moment right now. They're a bit underpenetrated from a crypto adoption perspective, from that kind of low to mid-end user who might have gotten burned with some of the highly decentralized, highly volatile, a little bit more risky assets over the past two years. Now it's got a little bit of crypto and might not trust themselves with, you know, to be fully self-sovereign. I think they've got an interesting place to play in to leverage the trust and scale that they have with consumers to kind of onboard some of that audience. But I haven't seen like a big marketing push around it. And I know they've been thinking about it and exploring. But with this announcement, I think that this is actually quite a BFD. 100%. And I think when you have big brands who are mainstream, like PayPal, like Coca-Cola, like Atari, like Coinbase, who are really kind of challenging the system it may be one of those moments we look back on and say, this incrementally brought us forward to something. And I do think that everyone in the crypto space would love to know that the government of the USA, in addition to the other major Euro governments and Asian governments, have a point of view. So just so you know how to work within those constraints, that's, I think, been one of the things that's really hindered adoption is that no one knows if they're actually potentially going to be breaking the law. I think that's 100% right. Yeah. These kinds of things, I think, get us to something that at least makes people have to go on record yes, and figure out whether they're comfortable with. I also think it's coming at an interesting time, right? It's coming at a time when a lot of Americans are reading very mixed reviews on crypto and blockchain. And the fact that PayPal is releasing this now, I think actually ultimately underscores their conviction in the future of blockchain and the future of crypto. I don't know. I'm sure that went through many hoops and hurdles to choose to launch this in August of 2023. But I think it really demonstrates their commitment to the space, actually. Absolutely. Another story we reported today, which is interesting because we are talking to Leslie Later, who represents the artist Grimes. But we reported today that Grimes claims to have made more money from NFTs than she ever made from music, which I thought was a really interesting statement. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, Grimes did release some very sort of highly sought after NFTs during key NFT timing of 21, 22. I believe one of them went for $400,000, which was a unique artwork that was a one of one. So she's done pretty well in the NFT space. She's always been a big supporter of blockchain and crypto. But it actually really exposed, I think, how hard it is to make money as a traditional artist in the streaming world that she was able to make more. Because I think a lot of people know Grimes, whether it's through her relationship with Elon or just as an avant-garde artist. But I think you and I have spoken so many times about the idea that music and blockchain still isn't really there. And the one thing that I took away from this was that Grimes is sort of still reinforcing that because where she made most of her money was still with herself as an artist, not as how many people bought a single or bought a song. Yeah. Should creative people be looking at these as alternative outlets instead of looking to see whether they can sell music, maybe using your notoriety and your fame? I think absolutely. At the end of the day, 
she's an artist, she's a talent, but she's also a business. And I think that that heyday really drove a lot of talent into the Web3 space because they also, you know, need to face the realities of the way that they make money has changed over time. You know, like I was reading something the other day about how Grateful Dead like really had this super unique strategy of allowing people to record at the concerts and then how that was like such a breakthrough at the time because then of course it just drove more people to wanting to go to the concerts and it was counterintuitive, but it really worked. I think musicians constantly need to reinvent themselves. Like, is it shows? Is it merch? Is it digital assets? Is it communities? Is it club memberships? Is it, you know, creating your own beer? Like there's a million and one ways to do it. And I think we ultimately need to respect artists that they need to make a living and capitalize on building a business. And we've seen some talent be able to do that. Grimes has clearly been at the forefront of this many times over. I'm sure we'll hear a little bit from Leslie on, you know, where this may be heading because I think Grimes has continued to innovate in this direction and continue to do things, both sort of paid mints and also free mints. So we'll get Leslie's hot take on it. All right. Final thing I want to ask you, Avery, someone asked me at work the other day. They saw that someone on Twitter posted how much money they had made as a creator because Twitter has started to do its creator payments out to folks. And not everyone, I think, is part of the ecosystem, but people are starting to post, oh, I made $3,000, $5,000, $10,000. And someone asked me, and I didn't have an answer, but I thought you would. They said, how do you think a company would feel if someone on their staff who tweets and is popular starts to make money from being part of a creator network, yet the content is coming from someone who also works and represents a brand? I want to challenge you to say, now that creator payments are happening, do companies have to think about whether or not their employees should be entering into creator agreements with platforms? I'll share from our perspective at Vayner. So as you know, ad agency, we have a lot of people who are varying levels of aspiring creators. You know, there are those shooting stars. There are those Amber Vittorias who are an art director who go on to be a full-time artist. There are also a lot of Avery Agnini's who are just trying to build their little following and certainly not using that as a method of compensation yet. And it's funny because it's something that's come up a lot before. People will take videos themselves in our production studio, at our offices, sometimes even leverage Gary's talent or access to events they have as being a Vayner employee. And we do have a very robust, you know, conflict of interest policy. Shout out to my legal team and Mark Yudkin, who runs all that. And we do have a side hustle policy. And I think this is not so different than that, right? And our rules essentially state you can't use, of course, any client confidential information, any confidential information that you have access to to gain your following. But hey, if you want to use your lunch break to shoot content and talk about what's in your sandwich and you want to delve into your passions and you want to be a practitioner, then go ahead. I think that affiliation is somewhat natural, but you can't commercialize your sort of place of work. But if you just want to be Avery, who is here to talk to you about, you know, 10 things you didn't know about AirPods, go ahead. If you're trying to make an infomercial of Avery from Vayner is, you know, wanting to sell you this, that, and the other, that's a little bit of a different scenario. But I think it's a gray area that many companies who are familiar with the social realm are quite familiar with. So that's kind of the example as it relates to a purely professional services business. I think it's even more important for those who build their identity as very closely tied to their company. And sometimes that can work out very well. Gary Vaynerchuk, VaynerMedia can be very effective. But if you are just, you know, Joe Schmo from a company and you don't own that, that isn't your company to make proclamations about, it's a bit of a different scenario. So I feel like this will come up. 
I think the hotter and more controversial topic is the creators who are actually just meme lords taking content that they did not uniquely create and making a fortune off that, which of course we know happens on all kinds of social media handles. But I've seen a few of those folks posting what they've made and they're actually not creating original content. Well, you could argue that they're adding their original spin to it or their original sense of humor, but they're actually taking content that exists and adding a thin layer on top. That I have even more of an issue with, but I don't have a great way to police. And we've known that this happens for many years. What's your take on that, Sam? I mean, I'm sort of sitting here in sort of wondering the realities of being someone young coming into the business world, where maybe if you were younger and more socially native, you might have already built a following. And then you come and you get hired by an Omnicom agency, you know, and you've already been monetizing your content on TikTok. And suddenly, yeah, like you're talking about your day at the office you know, and who owns that and who gets to share in it. So many people do that, even if they work at like Google. We've all seen those trending like day in a life at my job at Google. 100%. I'm just thinking who's doing like the fake NPC meme on their lunch break at Google headquarters and making a couple thousand dollars because they're popular. You know, it's a really interesting gray area. Is it bad that I think like good on them? Yeah, I think good on them too. But I think I can imagine brands having challenges with it, right? And yes. people are protective. So I think more like corporate clients, access to anything confidential, I think is squarely a no. Access to you being funny while you're on your lunch break at Google. Is that the end of the world? If I were the CEO of Google, I wouldn't think that was my biggest fish to fry. Agreed. But again, like there's that famous story of John Wren from Omnicom walking into his office and seeing the receptionist drinking a Coke when they represented Pepsi. And that person was fired on the spot. So what happens when you have social and the amplification engine that comes with the social algorithm? Just like it could be a dangerous topic, right? For folks who don't know that like political realities happen in offices too. So it's just, I think it's just an interesting creator topic to talk about that we should just see how things go as these payments get more. We'll keep our eyes on it. Yeah, well, with that, let's get to Leslie. We are back with Leslie Silverman. Leslie is the head of Web3 at United Talent Agency, someone who is connected to so many of the most important people in our space here. Leslie, so nice to see you. Thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. Longtime listener, first time recorded. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Gen C. We have probably mentioned your name many, many times on the show. Leslie, you're such an icon in the world of entertainment Web3. So we're so excited to have you with us and with the Gen C community today. Thank you. That's so kind. My first question for you, when looking in your background, I know you started out as a lawyer, then you became an agent at UTA, and now you're heading up the Web3 practice. Can you just like tell us a little bit about that journey? What got you interested in the space? Why did you leave lawyerhood and come into the world of talent and representation? What was the arc that got you to where you are now? Yeah, I think very few people would know that I actually started out as an employment litigator. So the furthest thing from my current position, I think, as possible. And, you know, it's been a journey. I practiced law for a little bit right after sort of the last big economic downturn and litigation was that job. You know, it got me from law school into the workforce. And then My last position as an attorney before I joined UTA in 2015 was working for a firm here in Los Angeles called Glazer Wild, and I was practicing art law. 
And for me, art law was sort of the dream, you know, the ability to work with artists and galleries and in some cases institutions and sort of shaping a very wild, wild west industry from a legal perspective. But the opportunity came up in the beginning of 2015 to go start a new business. And for me, that has just been the through line of all of the shifts in my career, just getting to be scrappy and getting to innovate. And so what I joined in 2015 was the first ever talent agency fine arts practice. And I got to be a part of building that new business for UTA, which today represents some of the most important visual artists in the world and also has an exhibition space where we put on world-class art exhibitions throughout the year. And you know, joining UTA gave me the opportunity. I mean, as a lawyer, I get to work with clients and I get to, you know, create protections for them around the things that they're doing in their careers. But joining UTA and being a fine arts agent and defining what that was gave me the ability to represent artists in their creativity. And for me, that was just, you know, an open swim lane. So at the end of 2020, I saw, as a lot of people did, the things that were happening in the NFT space specifically, I saw the insane pandemonium around Dapper Labs and what they'd created with NBA Top Shot. And it occurred to me that the blockchain had these implications for fandom and the creation of community and what value could be exchanged over this new internet. And Specifically, I started to see visual artists who I knew making a lot of money selling digital art. And for me, as an agent and as an attorney, I always felt that digital art was such a powerful medium and one that didn't have much of a fluid market. And so the fact that there could be this technology that would power a new marketplace for digital art was kind of eye-opening to me and really exciting. And then to add to that, the idea that smart contracts could house things like royalties and that they could, you know, guide the artwork throughout its lifetime was also just similarly exciting. And so I jumped in both feet. I was hanging out on Clubhouse, lurking around, seeing who was there and what people were talking about. And that led to me founding the digital assets division now web three at UTA and we're about two and a half years into that journey. So that was in January of 2021. So we're two and a half years after January, 2021, and a lot has happened in the world of web three. Leslie, how would you define web three today? You know, is this something that has taken on a more expansive view or have you always sort of been thinking about web three in the most broad sense? So I don't think my definition of Web3 has changed at all. I see it as an internet of ownership. I see it as this new environment that has implications for things like fandom and community and, you know, the disintermediation of a creator and their fan. Um, And I don't think that that has changed. But I do think that the applications and the presentation of what the technology can power and drive has shifted. And I've watched it shift. You know, it feels like it's been seasonal shifts. You know, there was the season of art on chain and there was a season of PFPs and there have been, you know, now more recently seasons around the idea of 
fan engagement, community engagement. And, you know, that's what I see from my business, but also in the broader business, you know, customer loyalty. So I think although we only saw certain product market fits in those early days, we're seeing new ones, but the definition of Web3 to me hasn't changed. Conviction. We love it. That's right. Leslie, I'm interested in our audience understanding how the organization of UTA works with artists because you also work with brands and you're also working with platforms and different communities. So can you just like talk a little bit about how you guys have set up the practice and then really what the benefit you bring to all those different parties is? And can I add on one little other piece of context? I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to hear as well. Like, how does UTA work? We've heard from a lot of brands. We've heard from a lot of creators. I think you might be our first you know, agency in the type of way that UTA as a talent agency. So maybe just give that like as a first context. I feel like this moment has been a long time coming because this is a question that I get a lot, usually in private. And so happy to just kind of, you know, give you the broad brushstrokes of what a talent agency is, and then talk a little bit about our Web3 practice and how we work within the broader UTA ecosystem. So at our very core, United Talent Agency, UTA is a talent agency. We're one of the big three in Hollywood and we represent talent. So we started our sort of core DNA was as a writer's agency. And so as you can imagine, you know, screenwriters, TV writers and guiding their careers and, you know, ultimately being their deal makers. And that's our DNA. And we built from there, you know, we represent actors and actresses, we represent musicians, we represent talent in the digital space. And we have a long history of being innovative. And what that means is, as an agency, we're one of the first to get to scale and build a digital talent business back when YouTube launched and the first to get to scale in the audio business, aka podcasting, where we are today. And we were the first to launch a Web3 division, which we called Digital Assets in the beginning, in 2021. And so we cover talent, media, and entertainment, and it's a 360 model. So I can talk more about what that looks like, but ultimately, we represent creators from all walks of life. And typically, there's a vertical that covers the creator within the agency. And so our Web3 division is an outgrowth of our entrepreneurialism as an agency. But similarly, we represent endemic Web3 talent, which is what the question that Sam asked was getting at. And we also represent our talent across the board and their initiatives in the Web3 space. So how do we represent that Web3 endemic talent, which is what we call it, or our native talent? You know, it really is just an outgrowth of what we do for talent across the board. So if our clients have a vision and a dream for what their career needs to be and isn't today, and they want to build connections and foster a trusting relationship with a partner, usually they sign on with an agent. And I can give you some fun examples, some of which you guys were probably a part of. So in the early days, when I first signed Thank You X, who's responsible for the gorgeous painting that sits behind me in my office here, I asked him, what do you want to do? Who do you want to collaborate with? And it was the beginning of 2021, this moment where visual artists who had a presence in the NFT space were being bombarded by possible collaborators, usually, you know, music artists, because they're super innovative. 
And I said, who do you want to work with? And he said, honestly, I've gotten so many incoming phone calls about people who want to collaborate with me, but, and they're all really awesome, but I really just want to work with Hans Zimmer. And within a week or two, Ryan, thank you, X, was sitting in Hans's studio in Santa Monica, and they were talking about collaborating on a project. And that's sort of like the magic and the sauce of what this relationship is about. They launched a project, which you guys may know, and it was in partnership with Philips Auction House. And I just remember this moment of being in Clubhouse and listening to Hans play the theme song for Interstellar to the audience in Clubhouse as part of the sort of roll up to that launch. And it was incredible. It was just this extraordinary moment. And there are more recent examples, which I can share, but I just, you know, I wanted to illustrate what sort of that relationship looks like. All who you know, that's in the special sauce. It's a little bit of who you know, how you can make connections, how you can make things happen for talent. And for our creator and entrepreneur listeners, why should they think about working with a partner like an agent? And why do you think that people utilize representation in this capacity? I know part of it is deal making, part of it is connection building, part of it is, you know, helping unlock a certain dimension of themselves. But do you see like common threads in why creators, whether they're Web3 or not Web3, want to work with an organization like UTA and then you in specific? Yeah, I mean, I think you covered a lot of the bases. There's definitely, you know, a unfair access to information. We see a lot of deals and we see deals on behalf of a lot of clients and with a lot of potential buyers. And so we get to leverage that information to ensure that our clients are, you know, getting the most out of the work that they're doing. And I think that's a huge benefit and a bonus. It's certainly, you know, creating maybe even unpredicted connections and thinking outside of the box and having a thought partner for that. But ultimately, I would say our clients get to a certain phase in their career where they want to level up. And typically, we're signing clients who are already seeing some success in their career, and they want to become more professional about, you know, putting those wins together over future months, years, and even decades. And that's the type of relationship that we look to foster with our clients. And I think at the very core and sort of the unspoken thing is trust. You want to have a partner who's going to have a perspective about your career and tell you the truth and be a fierce advocate and, you know, be a champion and a fan and also tell you the truth when they think that something you're doing isn't going to be helpful for that long game in your career. And Leslie, I also wonder how much you and your team, shout out to Caroline, are there also to say no to things. Because I do think there's so much power in being able to say no at certain moments in your career. And I think of some of the folks that you represent, people come to mind are like Snowfro and Bobby Hundreds and Betty and who are all such nice people that they probably want to say yes to everything. And you guys get to play a role that probably is one that allows them to feel a little less bad about turning people down because you're making just good business decisions for them, which feels like that's part of why one goes to an agent. No is so powerful. And it's a conversation that I have a lot with my clients and coming out of what felt like just an absolute hailstorm over the past couple of years, especially in our industry. I think that the things that I look back almost most proudly on 
are the things that my clients with our council didn't do because they either didn't pan out or wouldn't have been a great fit for their career ultimately. And that no is just so powerful. You know, if it's like a no, 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 and that builds up to a really powerful yes, then we're doing our jobs. And yeah, I think my team is responsible for, you know, carrying out that exercise with our clients as well. And I have such an incredible team that supports all of the creators and clients and founders that we get to work with and shout out to them for sure. So I've read some interviews with you in the past where you really talk about the idea of blockchain unlocking fan engagement, loyalty, kind of direct relationships with the people who love you or who support you. I did an interesting experiment yesterday where I went and tried to find the price of the first test pressing of Green Day's first record, where they printed like 500 of them locally. And I was able to find a mint version for about $100. And I did that because I wanted to see, could I find analogies for how people have supported early musicians and how it could benefit in the long run, the ability of investing early. And I will say that the people on the message boards who get those early test prints are so excited to get them. But what's not happening is I pay $10 at my local show to support Green Day. And now that $10 is worth $1,000, which is a little bit of the promise and I think the misaligned promise of early blockchain fan engagement. So I guess I want to sort of ask you a more macro question of kind of where are we on that timeline? Because the early promise with music and with art was, hey, you get in early, you support these folks, you help build their careers, and then you get paid back. And, you know, Taylor Swift pays her fans back in spades in her access to them, but she's not handing them lots of money. You know, so how much do we have to reimagine those engagement opportunities for artists with their fans and sort of take the financialization out of it, in your opinion? Okay, I'm going to politely disagree with some of the things that you said, but also just I think this is a really interesting point of conversation just and we could probably do this for hours, Sam. But when you mentioned this Green Day test print, what was it? Like the initial mint, right? That early relic that is like not worth that much in dollars, you know, not much more than maybe it was in the initial. The thing that came to mind, which is a strange thing to talk about, but I will, is my grandpa. So my grandfather was an art collector. Big Green Day fan, by the way. <laughs> I don't think, I, I, frankly, I don't even know if he knew who Green Day was, but I do. Big art collector. But alongside his really interesting art collection, which he later donated to Museum of Modern Art, he also had a small sort of side collection of plan drawings. And I didn't know this about him until much later in his life, when almost before he died. And those plan drawings were like early sketches of really important works of art by artists like Chris Burden and Damien Hirst. And that collection was amassed because he would go to artist studios and he would hang out with them and he would be like, can I buy that piece of paper from you? And they were usually just, you know, sketches on pieces of paper. And maybe if he had tried later in his life to sell off those sketches, which, you know, were anything from worthless to whatever the sentimental value was to the person who was purchasing it, he could have made some money back, maybe not a huge profit. 
but ultimately he ended up donating that collection of plan drawings alongside his more important art collection to MoMA. And it's there forever and you can go pull it up and anybody can go pull it up. And I think if we're thinking about financial value at any moment in the lifespan of supporting an artist and what is the cash out value, then we're thinking about this whole thing the wrong way. Being a true patron is not about buying in early so you can show that you sold midlife cycle. It's about supporting an artist and then supporting them more and then supporting them more and then supporting them more. And it's kind of a thankless exercise if you're measuring it by dollars and cents. But it's one of the most you know enriching relationships that you could build over the course of an artist's lifespan. I really like that take because I think a lot of times in the world of Web3, People think that everything has to be immediately monetizable because that's a behavior that in the last two years has almost been trained, not by creators intentionally, but unintentionally, because we've celebrated these wins of flips and, you know, gains and things like that and floor pricing, which when it's up only is a great thing to share. But then, you know, ultimately, that isn't necessarily a dynamic that we see playing out across true fandom in other realms. But one thing that always strikes me when I think about fandom and I think about the use case of blockchain is the proof, is the proving that you were there and being able to share that. I think this like immutable ledger where you can see engagements and you can see that you were there and you can see, you know, before they got big and before Green Day broke through, like having that is almost like a proof point. And I'm curious from your perspective, because you're working with so many of these artists, Many of them who were famous before this, but many of whom sort of their fame blossomed through Web3, have you seen some successful use cases of talent really leveraging blockchain to prove your fandom or to incentivize engagements that go beyond financial incentivization? Sam knows that this is something that I feel very passionately about, both for brands and for creators. Like, absolutely, there's a financial element and underpinning to Web3, but that is a part and absolutely not all of the ecosystem from my POV and Sam's too, of course. Okay, so there are a few things I want to say on this. Number one, when I first met Eric, which was hanging out in Las Vegas, CES 2022, the first time we really spent one-on-one time together, he minted a squiggle to me shortly after. And that squiggle is time-stamped to the commencement of our friendship. I now represent him and have done some cool licensing work around Chromie Squiggle, but it's not really about the monetary value of the thing. It's time-stamped to the beginning of a relationship, and I think that is just really fun and really interesting and something that doesn't exist anywhere else. So the second thing I want to say, which is a recent example of some of the work that we do at UTA, is we have a client named Grimes, who is one of the early pioneers of sort of, she literally sits at the pinnacle of Web3 and entertainment. She picks up new tools seamlessly as part of her artistic practice, and she was early to this. And this past March at Ultra in Miami, she started rolling out a new fan engagement model, and it's called Elf Tech. And we got to work with her on finding a great partner for that project. She worked with Zora for Ultra. And she announced a free mint from her stage at Ultra and on Twitter. 
and we left it open for a week. So if you were at Ultra and you knew about it, or if you follow Grimes on Twitter, you knew about it. And over the course of that week, that free mint, her Grimes Gen 1 avatar, did 80,000 mints. And it was a give back to the fans, but it was also the beginning of a journey. And I think that this idea of owning a moment or owning an experience where you've been, and it's not necessarily like a screen grab from that moment or a picture that you took or a Taylor Swift t-shirt, which I'm still bothered about the fact that I wasn't able to get one when I saw the show, which was extraordinary. There is really something there. And I think that that model that she's begun to build will prove out over the course of months around her tour and, you know, keep an eye on that and this space. But I do think that there's huge potential and fully agree with you, Avery. I think in many ways, we're all saying the same thing, which is that technology is transformational. Where we have to be worried, I think, is the crypto side that creeps in. You know, because I remember ICO summer in 2017 and 18, and everyone thought they were getting the next Ethereum. And I will say in 2017, like, when we bought Ethereum at $40, we thought it was overvalued. And now, of course, you look and you say, we should have bought a lot more. But in the same time, we were also buying all these other coins that went to zero. And I do think because of that intersection, you know, people were talking about CryptoKitties in 17 and CryptoPunks in 18. And no one sort of had that insight other than people like Eric and some of the other folks out there to say, oh, this is actually a transformational piece. So early got you value, right? Versus early got you connection and early got you passion. And I think that's where we all probably, the three of us align quite dramatically, which is you should celebrate and support artists, but not because you want to make money from them. You celebrate them because you are moved emotionally by what they do. And that's why this stuff matters. And this is just a better way. I love the fact that, you know, I mean, Leslie and I both share squiggles, I think, as our avatars on Twitter still. I won't say the other letter that the company is now named. But I say that in the sense that I think both of us represent, frankly, our friendship with Eric in a way that says, you know, we recognize also his importance in our space, right? And we were there whenever we got in, you know, whether you bought uh, Mint or he gifted or you bought it at, 25 ETH doesn't really matter. You're still there to say, this guy's important and I support what he does. Yeah. And the other thing about that patronage comment that I made earlier is that this is the first area where I really saw firsthand something radical, which was the engagement of creators directly with their collectors or their fans. So the idea that I could be an artist who works in the digital realm and I now have this marketplace through which I can sell my art. I think the problematic piece being that it's literally sitting directly on top of a financial instrument, which gives rise to a lot of the speculation that we've been talking about throughout this conversation. But I have a marketplace to sell my art. I have people, new people in a lot of cases. A lot of these collectors were new to collecting art. And these people are buying my art and they're paying me a fair value for it. And I get to chat with them in Twitter DMs or in Discord or, you know, via text. And I'm having this direct interaction and engagement. And that model for a very long time has been intermediated by intermediaries. So I thought that was just powerful and fascinating. And if nothing else, like that's 
the nucleus of how fan engagement, disintermediated fan engagement happens. Yeah, I love that. I think that continues to be the core. I don't think you need blockchain for that, to be honest. I think you can think about plenty of examples when fans build relationships with some of their favorite talent. That is IRL. That happens too. That happens in various social formats. But I love the proof and the verification of blockchain. And of course, from a talent perspective, like when there's this renaissance happening of tech and creativity and money all together, like it makes so much sense to lean into it. I'm curious how interested in these sort of new emerging internet technologies are your mainstream artists at UTA. Is this something that every client, I'm sure every client was calling you in 2021, wanting to talk about this. In 2023, are they all calling you about AI? Are they kind of like letting the emerging tech group under Leslie figure that out and picking up the pieces that feel right for them? I'm curious if it's a spectrum, how all of this kind of comes together with your core business. Yes to everything. Yes, yes, yes. We have seen mainstream talent interest across the board throughout the length of, you know, the lifespan of our digital assets, Web3 emerging technologies practices. And for many years prior, by the way, you know, not just blockchain, that wasn't the only digital innovation. And we have other businesses that testify to the prolonged engagement of our more mainstream or traditional talent in new technologies. And that train will never stop running. And what happens each time, which is the part that is so fascinating and exciting to me, is that in addition to the mainstream talent interest, which waxes and wanes, I mean, certainly things like you know, the end of last year and FTX and schemers and dreamers kind of getting rooted out of this very nascent industry. It definitely supports Wayne. But what I love is that each time there's also a new generation of talent who natively use these tools that get minted. And that's really exciting. And so it's always a balance, right? And it's generational. I mean, I think it's, you know, who's consuming this information. It's always surprising to me which of our clients are making those outgoing calls about a new or emerging technology, whether it be Web3 or AI or, you know, streaming across many platforms. You know, let's not forget Twitch and TikTok and all of the other insane things that are happening in the digital space. But there's always interest. And by very nature of being a creative person, you know, we have a lot of curious clients who ask a lot of really great questions. I mean, I guess I wonder when you have someone like a Gwyneth Paltrow, and I don't know if you guys still represent her, I believe you do, who already has a direct relationship, but then you might have a Paul Rudd or a Paul Giamatti who doesn't. How much of it is about connection versus, again, just a new business area for them to focus on? It's a great question. I mean, our clients spend time out there in the world talking to some of the foremost thinking, you know, folks in various industries, and they get tipped off and turned on to new things all the time. And I think that's a really fun part of our job is that we get to engage with and converse with that wider net of folks who are on the cutting edge, because our clients are out there having really stimulating conversations about new technologies. So I think that is part of this symbiotic and mutually supportive relationship that our clients have with their agents across the board. 
Leslie, I guess that like we'd be remiss to not ask the question with what's going on in the strike with SAG and what's happening in the conversation around AI and artists. What's your take on these new tool sets, which aren't going anywhere, but how they affect the talent business across your portfolio or your roster of talent who probably are all pretty scared about it? So I think it's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) Part two coming. We'll start scheduling. And frankly, one that a conversation that I look forward to having with you guys, given that AI and the tools that it presents is probably the, if not one of the biggest issues in the current strikes, we should have that conversation after there's some resolution. It's still very, very much probably the hottest topic in Hollywood. I happened to be on the Fox lot on Friday and just had to, you know, weave my way through some picketers. So I can't imagine what living there and being in such the epicenter of it is like. I like your cautious approach on seeing where all this lands because you're obviously representing, you know, your talent in the midst of the sort of broader industry cycle. And you just feel it in LA. It's like so tense. It's such a major thing for the world of entertainment. And I think this has gone on a lot longer than as an outsider in the space than I would have anticipated. It's obviously having like knock on and domino effects for how content is created and how these studios are distributing their incremental funds during this time. It's wild. But more broadly, Leslie, when you think about where emerging tech is heading for talent in the next year, what has you really excited? What has you thinking this has the potential to be that next big thing? What's your clubhouse of 2023? (laughs) I think that there's a lot we have to look forward to, especially around Web3 and sort of the adjustment. I think there was a lot of building out loud and failing out loud and succeeding out loud and talking, talking, talking over the past couple of years. And I'm excited to see the results of that. And ultimately, you know, it's an excitement and a hope. I hope what is being built and the overlay of all of the messy wires and acronyms, you know, NFT, AI, IP, like, I hope that there's an interface for this beloved technology that has fostered a massive community, which I count myself a part of, that my mom can just roll up to and not even know. <laughs> you know, like when that happens, which I hope will happen soon, I think it will prove a lot of the hard work that our clients have been doing and that we have been doing. And that you guys, frankly, have been doing as evangelists and supporters and voices for the Web3 community. Amazing. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for spending the amount of time you did with us. We look forward to that part two once the strike has been settled. Would love to hear your take on it, frankly, because I do think you sit in a very unique position for that. You got it. Does Gen C need a Gen AI episode? I think we do. Special edition. (laughs) A special Gen AI episode, right? And we'll do it live. We'll go to live for it. But yeah, so just thank you for giving us your time. I know we've been trying to plan this, I think, since we saw you in April. So I'm glad it finally worked out. And um, we look forward to catching up soon. Same. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I adore both of you. And this was really fun and a great way to spend a chunk of my afternoon. So thank you. 
I have just been admiring that gorgeous Thank You X painting the whole time. So, so nice to have you, Leslie. Um, listeners, check out Leslie Silverman and all of the amazing work that she does. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you, guys. All right, Avery, Leslie's great. I'm a really big fan of hers. I really think she is someone who brings a lot of insight and interest into the space. I also think that most people don't know why talent uses talent agencies, but I think we were able to like get into the nuts and bolts of that, which I do think is also an interesting conversation to have. There's a lot of folks that you probably deal with and I deal with where they say, call Leslie yes, or call Chris from WME or any of these people when we have an ask. And, you know, so we have to deal with these people quite a bit, but I think not everyone knows why they exist. Yes. We hear a lot about why Leslie exists, but there's so many other agents who are not as amazing as Leslie at times. But I loved having her on, hearing her perspective, hearing about how she's evolved in her career, but never evolved her thinking and definition of Web3, which I like. That's actually a counterpoint to what we've been hearing from a lot of our guests. We love counterpoints. And I can't believe we forgot to mention this, but Leslie and I have the same birthday. So she's a special, special person to me. And I think... It was incredible to have her insights around talent and how this has evolved and how she's built a whole new practice around these emerging creators and emerging talent at UTA. It's quite impressive. Absolutely. All right. I know we both got to run. Avery, so nice seeing you. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. We always appreciate it and we'd love to hear from you. So please make sure to drop us a line whenever you can. Thanks, Jen C. See y'all next week. <laughs>